49 states have laws that make it illegal to pay women less than men, and that number is probably about to increase by one. But as we discuss on today's podcast, not all women in that 50th and final state are celebrating. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So let's head on over to Jackson, Mississippi, and more specifically to the floor of the Mississippi State Senate. And I just wanted to give a little bit of background for those, I guess, really non-lawyers. What this bill is really simply doing is just creating a cause of action. That's Republican State Senator Bryce Wiggins during the floor debate on the Mississippi Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. And here's him being informed of the somewhat dubious distinction his state currently holds. Mississippi's, uh, there's like 40, uh, actually we're one of only two states to not have this kind of legislation. Oh, thank you, Senator Boyd. We're the only one. <laughs> Alabama passed theirs last year. And this version. This bill eventually cleared both chambers and is now sitting on the desk of the governor, Tate Reeves. Lawmakers in Jackson hailed this as a really big deal and compared it even to taking the Confederate battle emblem off of their state flag. But to call this an unqualified win for women in the workplace may be taking it a little too far. See if you can read between the lines here in this clip of Wiggins trying to persuade his colleagues. No, so I'm asking you as well as everybody to vote for a bill that is extremely business friendly, that also is to put women in the state of Mississippi on the same level as every other state in this, in this country. Thank you, Senator Polk. For what purpose, sir? Question, Mr. For President. you, Senator? Yes, Please, Senator please proceed, Senator Polk. I do. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My concern in this bill is businesses getting sued frivolously? <laughs> Senator Polk, I, I, I appreciate your question. Uh, um, and we had a conference committee, and the various business interests groups were in the conference committee and heard. And we have gotten, gotten it to the point where it's, it's what I call business friendly. Like I said, though, I understand the costs of a lawsuit and businesses and frivolous lawsuits are uh, unsustainable. Let me say this though, and many lawyers, not to get all legalese on this, but within the Mississippi Rules of Civil Procedure, which govern lawsuits, there are provisions that allow you to dismiss such frivolous lawsuits and in fact sanction the, uh, the, um, the litigants as well as the attorneys. And on that, it's that line, business-friendly, that hints at the compromises made to this bill along the way. But these are compromises made not just in the Magnolia State, but in the 49 other equal pay statutes across the country. Today, we're going to be talking about those compromises and what they mean for employment law with Andrea Johnson, Director of State Policy at the National Women's Law Center. She spoke to Bloomberg Law Southeastern correspondent Jennifer Kay about why equal pay statutes are so flawed in general and about why Mississippi's potentially soon-to-be statute is very flawed in specific. I think it's important to note from the outset that this is not an equal pay bill. Mississippi has been the only state for quite some time without an equal pay law, a state equal pay law, and they loudly proclaim that they now have a state equal pay law, but not so fast. That is not the case. If you look under the hood of this bill, you see it's an equal pay bill in name only. Mississippi still does not have an equal pay law. 
And honestly, I was offended when I first looked at, the, at this bill's language as an equal pay advocate. The bill rubber stamps employers' decisions to pay women less than men for equal work. And specifically, the, book, the, the bill really takes all the textbook factors that we know contribute to gender wage gaps and codifies them into law, allowing employers to defend paying a woman less than a man doing the same job by pointing to her salary history, gaps in her work history, or negotiation tactics. And those are all factors that study after study show reinforce women's lower pay. Right. And so let's go into what the bill spells out. So if Governor Reeves signs it into law, it would apply to full-time employees. You have to be working more than 40 hours a week. They would have to file a lawsuit within two years of when they knew or should have known about a pay discrepancy. And they would have to choose between filing a wage bias claim under the state law or under the Federal Pay Act of 1963. Uh, but like you said, it, it would allow some exceptions for employers to allow them to pay male employees more than women based on a seniority system, a merit system, or her salary history, or whether she had gaps in her employment history, like if she took off work to care for a family member, a child, or an elderly family member. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's really the part, those are the parts where the legislation has drawn a lot of criticism from your organization and other advocates in Mississippi. Definitely. And I think it's important to realize what's at stake with this bill. Uh, black women in Mississippi make 50 cents, 56 cents for every dollar paid to white men. And that number in itself should be shocking, but If you really add it up, at the end of a 40-year career, a black woman stands to lose nearly $900,000 to the wage gap. So black women in Mississippi, all women in Mississippi were really in a position of they can't, literally cannot afford to wait any longer for the wage gap to close. And with this bill passing uh, and its harmful impact, it's really disturbing because I think a lot of legislators will say, oh, we passed equal pay, we're done, things are fixed. And actually, this sets women back in in a really devastating way. So particularly in the Mississippi Senate, lawmakers seemed very concerned about the legal costs associated with wage bias claims. Are these disputes really that expensive to pursue? Like, what does it actually take to win a wage bias claim? Yeah, watching the the debate on the Senate floor in Mississippi was really disturbing to, to listen to how concerned they were about protecting businesses from lawsuits. No real mention of the fact that $900,000 stands to be lost for black women in over a 40-year career. Um, it, that conversation, that debate on the floor really reflected their deep ignorance of the reality of pay discrimination. It is incredibly hard for an employee to ever find out they're being paid, paid unfairly. And if they do find out, it's incredibly hard to bring a lawsuit, much less succeed on one under the, our current laws and definitely under this new Mississippi law because they are so stacked against employees and incredibly protective of employers. And you know, for many women, like Lily Ledbetter uh, from neighboring Alabama, she did not know for decades that she was being paid significantly less than her male counterparts. And that is a common story across the country. If an employee does find out that they're being paid unfairly, um, instead of just suspecting it like so many of us, if they bring a lawsuit, they are risking a lot. They're risking retaliation. Retaliation is illegal, but it is still very common. And then hiring an attorney can be 
very expensive, especially when you consider the length of time that it takes to bring one of these claims. There's so much secrecy around pay uh, imposed by employers and it makes it very difficult to find out the details of you know, why were you being paid less than your male counterpart and that can make these lawsuits very lengthy. Um, and then for those who manage to file a lawsuit, the chance that their case will be dismissed right out of the gate is, is high. Um, under the Federal Equal Pay Act, courts have made it incredibly difficult for a plaintiff to establish they're being paid unequal pay for equal work. That equal work uh, language in the, the Federal Equal Pay Act, some courts have interpreted it so narrowly that they really require identical work in every, every possible way, which makes it really hard for uh, an employee to, to bring the case and to show a comparator. The equal pay, Federal Equal Pay Act has a lot of loopholes in it. The defenses that an employer can be brought um, have become blown out of the water by a lot of courts, making it so that an employer can point to a male worker's supposedly stronger negotiation skills or highest, higher previous salary as justification for the pay gap. Um, and what's really disturbing about Mississippi's law is that it, it builds on that bad case law um, from some of these courts and doesn't even require an, a court to kind of do a searching analysis of whether that is a, ju a valid justification from an employer, but says, just puts it right into the law. It's okay to rely on salary history to justify pay, uh, pay gap. It's okay to rely on negotiation skills, even though study after study shows that those types of factors create wage gaps within workplaces. One of the things that Mississippi law would do if it's signed is it would force women to choose between filing a claim under the state law and filing a claim under the federal law. Is that pretty typical for equal pay legislation in the states, or do other states allow you to, to file both? You know, lawmakers were really concerned about double dipping on damages for these claims. That provision in the Mississippi law forcing an employee to waive their more protective federal rights if they bring a state claim is not something I have seen in another state. It is deeply disturbing and likely unconstitutional, and there were Mississippi law professors saying that. Um, and I think the legislature heard it to some extent because they did eventually include a provision in the bill saying that if anything in the bill is found to be unconstitutional, the rest of the bill will still stand. So I think they acknowledge themselves that they were drafting some unconstitutional language. That is not common to see in a state law because, again, you can't just, a state can't force you to waive your federal rights. If I, you know, I'm assuming best intentions on the part of the legislature, legislators, I think they were cons maybe concerned about somebody being able to recover both under a federal uh, equal pay law claim and a state equal pay law claim. That's already not something that can happen. Um, you can bring both claims, and that's a common thing for lawyers to do, bring a claim under both the Federal Equal Pay Act and the state law equivalent, uh, because they can address different things, and it's you know, important to, to kind of use all the potential tools that you might have for your client. That doesn't mean that they get double recovery necessarily under both. Uh, but this bill made it such that you would, before you could even bring your state law claim, you have to waive your federal law rights um, and the right to relief. And that's deeply concerning because somebody the, since the state law is so much weaker, somebody would be left with fewer rights than they have now. Okay. Um, so let's talk about some of those other state laws. You know, as we keep saying, Mississippi is the last state in the country to pass this kind of legislation. It seems like most other states have had this for decades. Uh, the most recent state 
other than Mississippi to enact one of these laws was Alabama in 2019. And that law includes a ban on wage discrimination based on race, and it bars employers from requiring job applicants to disclose their salary histories. what is the landscape like overall when it comes to equal pay laws in the states? Do they tend to look like the 2019 law in Alabama? Do, do states see a lot of claims brought under their state laws every year? So many states have had their own state equal pay law on the books for decades. And at least initially, a lot of those state equal pay laws look very similar to the Federal Equal Pay Act. Uh, but we've seen over the last 10 years that lots of state legislators are pushing to strengthen their equal their state equal pay acts because they've seen all the loopholes that have arisen under their own state laws and under the federal laws that employer defenses have become just so broad that it's really easy for an employer to to avoid liability that plaintiffs can barely make it past the initial filing of a complaint because the standard for equal work equal pay for equal work that courts are using is just overly burdensome so states have been very intentionally trying to strengthen their their laws in ways that we don't see yet yet in the federal law. Um, and there's 19 states now that have strengthened their, their state equal pay law in, in some way. And really, federal law is the floor. That should be our, our baseline. States, when they pass an equal pay law, it's a chance to do better and provide more protection. And really, that's what needs to happen for to make the law worthwhile, because we all always have the federal laws as a, as a backup. Um, if we're doing doing a state equal pay law, it should be better. But Mississippi went in the exact opposite direction and provided a law that was substantially worse. Um, and I've seen states that have weak equal pay laws. Alabama's law, which they passed in 2019, was not particularly strong. It, it was fairly weak, but they did include race as uh, another protected class in addition to sex, and that's an advancement over federal law. And they also made it so you can't be retaliated against for not responding to the salary history question. And that is also an advancement over federal law. So there were some strengths there that make the law worthwhile. Mississippi's law is not in that category. It has provisions that are actively harmful and and doubling down on, on factors that we know contribute to the wage gap. And I think it's, Going back to this conversation we heard on the the Senate floor about how do we protect businesses, lawsuits will be rampant. That is, again, just reveals a deep ignorance of the reality of pay discrimination and the playing field of an employee versus a business and the, the resources available there. It is very difficult for so many reasons for an employee to bring a claim, fear of retaliation, um, and just the, the way the law is stacked against them, the, the cost of hiring a, an attorney to, to navigate these complicated laws. Um, we've seen it's a little difficult to measure the impact of some of the new state laws that, uh, that have been strengthened recently, um, since they are so new. But we know, for example, that Massachusetts, which strengthened their law in 2016, and notably they did so by including a ban on asking for salary history. Uh, from job applicants. We know that that has not resulted in a deluge of lawsuits. Um, I think the attorney general received maybe 20 claims in the first year. And again, just at the attorney general's office, not a full-blown lawsuit yet. And I think what's important to to note with with Massachusetts law and and many laws we've seen uh, come through recently um, is that they include proactive measures that help employers avoid lawsuits. And I think that can play a role and not having a whole deluge of lawsuits with these new laws. 
A ban on salary history is a proactive tool for an employer to avoid lawsuits because it helps employers avoid wage gaps arising from the very beginning of, of somebody's employment with them. Um, so th- these are really important measures that, again, nobody wants to spend time in court. They want to be at work being paid what they um, their value, and these new laws are helping with that. And has there been any... On the question of salary history, has there been any consensus in in the courts as to whether you can or you can't use it? I think my understanding was in the federal circuits, some circuits say yes and some circuits disagree. So the EEOC has um, long said that relying on salary history by itself is would undermine the whole purpose of an equal pay law. And several circuit courts have followed the EEOC in that respect. Some courts have broken with the EEOC's position on salary history and have permitted employers to rely on salary history, so there is a a split presently. Um, There was one case that went up to the Supreme Court from the Ninth Circuit, the Eileen Rizzo uh, v. Uvino case, and the Supreme Court denied cert in that case, was not heard it. So the Ninth Circuit decision saying very clearly that relying on salary history would just undermine the whole Equal Pay Act. Um, that decision stands, and I think it's a really important decision, but also incredibly important is to look at the massive momentum we've seen across the country to ban this question in state leg- state legislatures passing laws to ban the salary history question, but also employers voluntarily deciding to drop the question in their, in their hiring process. And I think just like one more back to basics question, you know, we do have the federal law. We had the Equal Pay Act of 1963. So if we have a federal law, where do the state laws really come into play? Why do we need them in addition to that federal law? So the federal law, the Federal Equal Pay Act provides an important baseline set of protections. And states have the opportunity to provide stronger protections. Federal law needs to be the baseline. They should not be doing less than the federal law. And and that's what Mississippi has done here. Uh, But Mississippi had a chance with the Equal Pay Law and frankly needed to, very much so, to do something better, to include, to pass a law that not only addressed sex-based disparities, but also race-based disparities. And that's particular, that's important throughout the country. It's especially important in Mississippi, given that women, black women, make up such a large percentage of the population and have such a large wage gap. Race needed to be a key part of that bill, and Mississippi missed that opportunity here. And we've seen states also moving forward to explicitly ban reliance on a job applicant's salary history to set pay. That was something else we needed to see in this Mississippi bill. But again, they did the exact opposite uh, and went back to the dark ages and have now codified into law reliant on salary history, something that I've not seen in, in any other state. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what Governor Rees does with the bill, whether he signs it, whether he vetoes it, whether he allows it to become law without his signature. Um, You know, he hasn't really said anything that I've seen about this particular bill, although he has been trying, um, certainly since the start of the pandemic, to boost Mississippi's profile economically. He's talked about eliminating the state personal income tax as a way of attracting more businesses to relocate or to hire remote employees in Mississippi uh, to move their production or their offices to Mississippi. He, he wants that, to see that investment. And you heard lawmakers talking about that, that if we have this legislation, then 
you know, companies with a lot of women on staff will want to be here because we have one of these laws. We won't be an outlier anymore. But it, it doesn't sound like a lot of women would end up seeing any benefit from the state law. No, women would not benefit from this, this state law, and, and more likely they'll actually be harmed by it. And so it's not enough just to call something equal pay law. And I, I would imagine that businesses really interrogating whether they should move to Mississippi would look at whether uh, what this equal pay law actually does. Um, and to the extent the governor's focused on investing in, in Mississippi and, and Mississippi businesses, Mississippi businesses need consumers. So many families in Mississippi are headed by women breadwinners, by black women breadwinners, and they are being shortchanged day after day in the state. And if they are not getting paid their full pay, Mississippi businesses are not going to do well. To just look at protecting businesses from lawsuits instead of incentivizing businesses to to pay fairly, to pay their workforce fairly, to have a loyal, productive, happy workforce, to have communities that can actually pay for the services these businesses are, are putting out into the world. That's what we need to be focusing on and, and this, this focus on protecting businesses from lawsuits that you know, very, aren't likely to come is incredibly short-sighted and misguided. That was Andrea Johnson, Director of State Policy at the National Women's Law Center, speaking to Bloomberg Law's Jennifer Kay. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, with help from Cheryl Sines. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in Biloxi, Mississippi. I'd love to go there someday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.